Welcome to Surviving Artists, the show where we talk to everyday working artists about where they come from, where they are now, and how they define success. I'm Will. I'm Amanda. And today's guest is Amanda. It's me. It's you, who is a journalist and a writer here in New York. There is nothing worse than hearing yourself talk on tape, except for hearing yourself talk about yourself. Preach it, yes. On tape. Yes. I couldn't agree Nightmare more. situation. It is a nightmare situation, but before we roll said nightmare, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a follow on Instagram at surviving.artists. All right, please enjoy this episode. Enjoy it. I'll be hiding. Like we start any of these episodes, where'd you come from? I'm going to give you literally the stock answer that I give every time anybody asks me this, which is... What's the stock answer? Hard question to answer. Mm. Both my parents are in the Navy. So I grew up moving around every 18 months to three years. Right. I can I can list the places. You ready? Yeah. Fire them all off. Born in Virginia. Then I moved to Japan, upstate New York, Florida, Tennessee, Italy, back to Tennessee, Carolina for college, and New York post-grad. Man. How was that? Hopping around from place to place as, as a kid, really? Yeah. Um, in the moment, it sucked. I have this, (laughs) such a like specific memory, but when we were moving to Italy, my parents took us, we were living in Memphis at the time, land of the chain restaurant, and they took us to the Olive Garden. Oh, classic. Yeah. This is like characteristic, 100% my dad's idea. And they told us when we were like eating that bread that they bring with olive oil. Oh yeah, the breads, yeah. Yeah. And I have a strong memory of immediately bursting into tears and going outside and sitting on the curb (laughs) and and just like taking 10 minutes to cry and then coming back in. And that's what it was like every single time. Like, I think it's really tough to have a kid start to make friends. And especially it gets older, the longer you, like the older you are, like making new friends, your junior year of high school is a different ball game than making new friends in like the fourth grade. But in retrospect, it's the coolest thing in the world. When I went, like, when I was in 10th grade and I was competing in my softball tournament, I was going to Sicily or I was going to Germany or, you know, I was marching in the marching band in Brussels or I was competing in the backstroke in the Netherlands. Like, it's oh, wow. crazy. Like, that's not an experience that people get. Like, yeah. And I think also that I left those experiences with like a certainty that I could adapt to any situation. Like no matter what happens, I can get up again. So jumping from place to place, new friendships, was there something that you clung on to that was like a constant source of stability for you? My family and like books. Mm. That's kind of it. And I think when I think about books, I think about writing as well. Like, the only things that were always there for me that were like the literal physical constants are the four people that are also in my family with me and then a place for me to write down. So literally just four people and then me also, (laughs) me writing to myself. And I think that's kind of it. I also think, you know, I think about this a lot, like 
the military paradigm is to treat everybody like family because when you're in a place 3,000 miles from home, the people around you are all you've got, especially if those are the only people that speak English. Um, right. I will say that, that it's the, the four other people in my family and, you know, my ability to find a library or a journal wherever I was, but also kind of, if temporary, the communities that we built in each mm-hmm. of those places. Mm-hmm. Was there a particular book that like really resonated with you that you connected with well I read so much like I was one of those people that I was like reading a book under the table and letting everybody else talk to each other (laughs) you know yeah I like had a really strong moment with the Harry Potter series of course classic yes um there were like those chapter books that early high school you get into there's like the Dr. Franklin's Island the the Westing game all those just kind of like this is what science fiction is. This is what murder mystery is. Like, it's the introductions to all of the genres yeah. that I just, like, really latched on to. But I, I don't think there's, like, a specific one. But I will say that the Harry Potter series is one that I constantly am just, like, going back to. I really, like, I don't even know. Oh, yeah, I know the classics. Like, it's a dictionary. Yeah, <laughs> Like, yeah. it's a resource text. Yeah, I know, without a doubt. Without mm-hmm. a doubt, they're brilliant. So, your love for books and everything, did that come on your own accord? Or was it where your parents... Also in your literature and stuff. Yeah. I don't remember. I truly don't remember. I think, like, Uh I grew up in a house that always had books. It doesn't matter where we lived. We always had a bookshelf. And we always had access to a public library. My mom read a lot. Mm -hmm. We definitely, like, went to the library, like, once every week or two. And, you know, she would get, like, five to seven books. Mm -hmm. Um, So so I guess from her, and I guess just, like, that going to the library was a Mm. constant Mm. for us. Oh, wow. For me, in my mind, I, I also think of you as a writer, hmm. for sure, or, or a poet. When did that come about f- uh, for you? Yeah, I don't have, like, a, a strong concept of the first time that I started journaling. I have, like, a couple, like, moments that I remember as kind of signposts in that experience. Like, mm-hmm. one was that, oh my god, <laughs> uh, this is, I haven't thought about this in forever, but my best friend at the time, Kate, and I, via Facebook Messenger, were writing a novel back Ooh. and forth. We would write like a chapter at a time, and would alternate. You, like, switch, would you like switch yeah, off? Okay. And alternate chapters. So like, I wrote the first few pages of the book, and then she wrote the next, and then you had to like build off of each other and take the story wherever they oh, took that's it. So cool. And her story was about what happens when you die. And of course, that's a loaded. That's it was a loaded. loaded. Topic. It was loaded. I think the character's name was like Chelsea or some uh-huh. shit, and she got hit by a car in the, on the first page and then the rest of it was just like her discovery it was kind of like the good place <laughs> but but uh but, we were 12 so we're, there was less like proust <laughs> and <laughs> and a bit more angst right exactly more just like that scene in spy kids where they put something into the microwave and then open the microwave again and it's a hamburger oh yeah like yeah. more just like yeah. kind of experimenting with this world in which the laws of gravity and physics and everything else don't apply. Yeah, they don't exist at all, whatsoever. Yeah, and I also remember, you know, my parents both worked. They were they were both, you know, while I was growing up, either in the Navy, away doing their jobs often, or uh, my dad was also a teacher. So during the summers, when we got old enough, we were just kind of alone. And mm. But my dad would, would leave us just like a list of things to do. Oh, okay. And some of them were chores. Some of them was practice the piano. Some of it was, you know, SAT prep. But some of it was like, write me a story. Write me, you know, 10 pages front and back. 
uh-huh. by the time I get home today. And so I, similar to you, I think wrote like a binder of like the adventures of Super Kid. <laughs> um, so there's like those moments like that. But I also have like this strong memory. I took one poetry class or creative writing class in college. And I had this summer that was so emotional between my freshman and sophomore years where I was essentially like a camp counselor for smart kids on Duke's campus to a a camp that I had gone to and now was just like both looking after all of these children that were like me at that age Mm -hmm. filled with angst Mm -hmm. my fellow counselors were also 22 and we would stay up together till four o'clock in the morning also taking on the burdens of like these children that were going through everything from body image issues to deaths in the family to not understanding you know how college works and how you know this experience was going to lead them to college and therefore a good life so we were both caring for others in a really intense way but also caring for each other in a really intense way kind of falling in and out of love with each other getting in fights doing it on four hours of sleep and I just like had the most emotional summer I think that I had ever experienced up until that point and I think during that summer, during those like moments of intense sleep deprivation and like not knowing if, you know, the guy that I was in love with was in love with me also, yeah. journaling just turned to like <laughs> this is such a dumb reference to oh, me. No, 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 no. But are you ready? Yeah, um there's a line in The Heist by Macklemore where he's talking about his first album, which is about addiction, where he says, uh, God wrote other side, the pen was in my hand where it just it felt like I was compelled to just like put things on paper and that's when I first started writing poetry and it just like felt like it wasn't me who was doing it it was just like falling out of me right and ever since then have just been writing in a variety of different ways but it's focused mostly on just like journaling nonfiction, um poetry except for like one or two published poems mostly for myself and then news writing and podcast writing have been mm-hmm. public right yeah Number one, first off, thank you for pronouncing Macklemore correctly. And I say so Mac Elmore, like a lot of people. No, know. it's so wrong. It's, it's Macklemore. It's so exactly. It's even spelled <laughs> phonetically correctly. Right. Just but read, people, guys. Just, just, just read. Just know. <laughs> you never have hooked on phonics like, yeah. as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to what you're saying about how you got into poetry, was it almost in a way therapeutic for yourself? Yeah, it was therapeutic because it felt like when you write something and you don't revisit it, it is the, the purest encapsulation of that emotion that you were you know, putting on paper in that moment. And I think that's what it was to me. Like the point was to recognize that I was like most frustrated, the most confused, like the, just like the intensity of the emotions that I was feeling was so heightened that getting it on paper felt like this needs to be documented. This is how I'm going to do it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It's like when you're so angry that you could scream, screaming helps. Yeah. It was like when you're so angry that you can write a poem or when you're so just like enamored with this person that yeah. it just, is off limits. It just falls out. Right. Yeah. Yes. No, yeah. I can definitely attest to that too when it comes to uh, the songwriting and stuff. You know, it is like a deeply personal thing. Like whether mm. if it's your feeling, you know, shitty or like the flip side of that, you're feeling completely enamored. Yeah. And just a lot of the great stuff just falls out of you right away. Yeah. But yeah, have you know, have you ever gone back to a certain creation or a poem or a story, and not revised, but just gone back to it and be like, revisited it in 
some way. Yeah. I wrote one poem about, I mean, summer camp. It was, like, about this guy. And I did end up reading it to him, which was the scariest mm. experience of maybe both of our lives. But I just, and I also, like, submitted, it was published in my, like, college literary whatever the fuck like literary magazine liter- yeah basically although it was just basically a pamphlet it's a small school oh, um, yeah yeah <laughs> and like looking back at it I, w- I guess the point is is just like i was so proud of it and like it really captured what i felt in that moment it was something about like a hot stove and you shouldn't touch it mm-hmm. i don't know but you do anyway but like i i found it again a few years later, like senior year, when I was putting together my like, final poetry portfolio for one of my classes, mm-hmm. and I was like, "This looks like an eighteen-year-old wrote it," <laughs> and she did, you know. <laughs> but um, but it just was so jarring to see this thing that like absolutely meant the world to me at the moment mm. look like something that was unrecognizable to me mm. in in that you know only only a couple of years later moment but I will also say that I don't think that's an embarrassing there's there's um I'm going to refer back to um Marina Keegan who wrote the book The Opposite of Loneliness the story of her book is that it's like a collection of essays and fiction that she did in school and it was published posthumously after she died in a car wreck oh yeah I think yeah 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 it was like a it was an extraordinary book but her um professor wrote the foreword to it yeah and she was talking about, well, most writing students try to write like someone else, try to write like the greats. Yeah. And she was talking about the real strength in Marina was that she sounded like she was 20 because she was 20 when she wrote. So I think like, yes, I've revisited and I have been embarrassed at those poems, but also I think that they're valuable because the greats aren't 20 and they don't capture that experience and that experience isn't um, reflected in the body of work that most people are consuming. Right, yeah. It's but a, that experience is just as valuable. Yeah, no, for sure. It's like that was, you know, your truth at the time. Yeah. And, you know, it's like a time captured in a bottle, in a yeah. way. You know, even if you look back on it, and it might seem like ridiculous and cheeseball to you, sure. it's, in, you know, in the scheme of things, it, it is like universal truth. It's like, you know, even you just telling me the essence of it, it's like, you know, hot stove don't touch but you still you touch it it's like you know i feel like anyone who reads that can relate to it no matter where you are and you know in your life what compelled you to go to duke Mm. university um really one thing actually Mm. i went to a summer camp on duke's campus and it was three weeks every year for four years but i just fell in love with the campus because it's a city in the forest and it's beautiful. But also it was the first time I was surrounded by people who were just as curious as I was, just as completely bored by the public school system as I was. And going back and RCing was was very like kind of eye-opening for me um, because I got to see what I was like there. And I think like with that clarity, smart kids just have so much just like pent-up energy that they're just trying to like have directed at something and the public school system is not built to encourage that and to kind of help people figure out all the different directions that could go so when i was going to this um camp i was studying something that was at the college level for three weeks um but i was surrounded by a bunch of 13 year olds who also were doing that so they were also interested in journalism at age Mm -hmm. 13 they were also interested in like archaeology and anthropology at age 14 and i think i took like abnormal psychology for the the next one and so 
I had this like profoundly intense experience and met friends that I am still friends with now at that summer camp, but also got to kind of engage with the world in a way that was elevated and kind of up to where I wanted it to be and was actually challenging me. And so I associated that really great experience with the place. And I was like, I love that place with my whole entire heart. I want to go back. Yeah. So I applied early decision and got in and locked myself into that path. <laughs> and luckily it turned out great. Like, I mean, I am currently wearing a Duke sweatshirt. Like it yeah. is yeah. And something I'm vocal about. And, and many of my closest friends are from that, from that mm-hmm. school. I think like it ended up being a really great experience for me. Yeah. And one where I was still surrounded by a lot of people who were like-minded. I don't think everyone comes there with a chip on their shoulder, but I came with, you know, something to prove. Yeah. And Duke really like opened up a lot of doors for me and taught me how to open up a lot of my own as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just said that you had something to prove. What was what was that thing that you? Yeah, I think when you think about Duke University, you probably think about the tall, beautiful frat boy or sorority girl who comes from money. I came from a background where. Both of them built careers in the Navy. They Mm -hmm. were very removed from the professional world. They went to college, but really not the same. And like my mom like lived at home and worked, you know, nights and like it wasn't this kind of intense campus-based college experience where everyone is coming and wants to be the next president or like notable name or just like it wasn't this like elite institution where the pressure was on to, to be really extraordinary in kind of every sense of the word. And I just felt like I didn't come in with this preparation. I I didn't, Mm. I didn't have the innate training by going to like Phillips Exeter or whatever country day friend school. I don't know. I'm just naming like elite (laughs) high schools across the country now, but like I just didn't feel like I had the resources, the money or the background to like come in and rock it. Right. And so I always felt like I was proving that I belonged there, Mm -hmm. which I think in one sense is a driver, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I I, I feel like it is a driver, but at the same time, I feel like you have a certain, certain level of freedom too. Unlike a lot Mm -hmm. of people who, I mean, I'm just assuming based on what you're telling me here, where it's like they do come from these more elite institutions, high schools or whatever. And it's like, they are going in there like dead sit on, Oh, I have to. Yeah. Let it, uh, whatever it is. Decree something. Yeah. And I feel like that, in a way, is kind of a little bit of an unhealthy mindset. But it sounds like, in a way, you kind of had a certain level of freedom going in. It is, I will say, a frustrating place to be, though, when there's this sense that I needed to prove myself, but I didn't know what I wanted to prove. What to prove, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I I went in wanting to be a sports psychologist. Uh I changed my major to being, you know, like, cultural anthropology. Yeah. Then I wanted to study religion, oh, just I like from okay. a purely wow. academic standpoint, okay. from that really like cultural anthropology yeah, standpoint, yeah, yeah. Um, and then found journalism in a back door. Mm-hmm. But most of what I built there was just like me spraying and praying with applications, mm-hmm. and then taking what was there. Yeah. And then once I had raw materials, <laughs> building something from it. But I I think the overwhelming sense was just like. I need to be doing something. I need to be doing something, but I don't know what that something is. Right. Okay. Yeah. So like a lot of trial and error. Yeah. Type things like exploring, mm-hmm. like, you know, yourself in a way. Yeah. 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 For sure. What compelled you to decide on journalism? 
the way I got into it was I had a professor one one year who sat us down and he was like, hey, take this semester, find something you care about, connect it back to public policy and journalism. Mm. I'll see you in a few weeks. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just discovering the magic of Saturday Night Live at the time. I was just discovering the Jon Stewart Daily Show at the time. And oh, I was yes. I was just discovering like late night, essentially. Yeah. I was falling in love with the way that a John Oliver sketch could change people's minds about something. And I was falling Truly. in love with the way that you know, John Stewart and a team of writers could get policy passed. And I was, I think that was a moment where I was like, media has this immense power to affect the way that people think. Mm-hmm. And traditional journalism is not reaching all these people who are watching the, the uh, Daily Show. It's not reaching the typical Saturday Night Live viewer. And there are so many ways that we can be talking to people and getting them information that the media is not doing. And so based on that, someone was like, hey, you should go talk to this guy, Bill Adair. He is this, you know, he's been at Duke for like a year at this point and he's running and kind of revamping the journalism program. Mm -hmm. And I feel like my interest, at least at first and probably still now, is really in that second half. It's in the media studies part. And, Mm -hmm. And of course, at that point, I was like in peak chip on shoulder mode. And I would just go to professor's office hours, pretend to have a question, and then just, like, bring up some anecdote about my life until they talked to me. (laughs) And Bill, I just had a drink with him uh, yesterday, actually, Uh when I was in Durham. And it's just, it's, I feel like it's so clear to professors when you do that. (laughs) But, (laughs) But I didn't know how else to, I just, like, I wanted these sentinels and I wanted guides to tell me, what it's like to have a career in these different professions and so he was one of the first that I had on campus that was like all right this crazy 18 year old is in my office just like eyes in full crazy mode talking about the daily show and Jon Stewart let's just let's just let her have it you know <laughs> like, let her have the moment let's just yeah you know bring her into this department on campus mm-hmm. and really all they wanted at that time was more students in the department and i added it to my things that I was studying, and, and the rest is history. Yeah. Tell us how you got involved with uh, the skim here in New York. Yeah. I was living in Boston between my sophomore and junior years, and I was living with, like, six women. It was oh, far wow. too many people in one apartment. But they referred me to the skim, and I started reading. And because I was also a new enrollee in journalism department, I had to fulfill still this requirement of an internship at some point before I graduated. And since I was already in Boston that summer, it wasn't happening that, that year. And so I had, you know, one other chance to make it happen between junior and senior years. And I think at the time that they, they were so young, they were less than four years old as a company. But there wasn't even like a an, an internship like application. There was no mm. like job site really for them. And so I started emailing this alias that was like the skim ambassador at the skim. It's essentially like the oh, help, the, the help. Yeah, it's like the help line. And I emailed, and I emailed, and I emailed, and someone yeah. got back, and it was like clearly kind of a stock response. Mm-hmm. But I emailed, and I emailed, and I emailed until someone like accidentally responded from Caitlin at the skim, and then I was like, "Oh, Caitlin, <laughs> babe, you've got it in." So I emailed, and they were, and it was like February at this point, and I was asking mm-hmm. for a job in like May or June, 
And they said, listen, it's really early. We're a media company. Like, check back in a few months. And so just strategically, every few weeks from that point on, I was like, hey, I still exist. Yeah, hey, still here. hello. And then I actually, it's so funny, I, I actually found the email thread earlier. I was so desperate to get this, like, internship requirement filled that they did not officially tell me yes. They gave me, like, two different dates that, like, might work and asked me to set my preference. And then they were being, like, really just, like, not responsive. Yeah. And I needed to fulfill this requirement. So I got Bill to give me one of the stipends that they reserve for people who are taking on unpaid or low-paid internships. I found housing in New York, and I just showed up. <laughs> wow. Without, and without, I don't like, know why they let me in the building. <laughs> wow. So without, like, an actual, like, confirmation from there, and, like, this is... Yeah, I was, wow. I was in New York before I got the email that was like, yeah, okay, so we'll see you tomorrow morning. But I, I literally, I was like, okay, are you thinking, like, this June date? Or are you thinking this, like, later in July date? Yeah. And I was like, I'll just show up for the June date and hope that it works out. And I emailed them, and I was like, I haven't heard back, but, like, I'll be in New York starting on June 5th. And then I got an email on June 5th at, like, 5 p.m., which was a Sunday that year. Uh-huh. And they're like, oh, great, that's perfect, we'll see you tomorrow morning. Wow. It was just like... That's wild. <laughs> I don't know why they let me in the building. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, originally it was only supposed to go for three weeks, mm-hmm. and I was supposed to work 20 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And it was... I ended up working like closer to 40, 50 or 60 hours a week and staying on for the whole summer. It was wild. And I ended up, you know, coming back on after my senior year full time. So clearly I was not a threat. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's, that's incredible. What, what attracted you to discover a particular out of like the list of like the 10? Yeah. I think that it was... The same reason that I cared about, you know, SNL and John uh-huh. Stewart and and John Oliver and the rest is just that millennial women were not reading the news before the skim existed. And I think that I was deeply aware of the fact that, like, journalism is written for other journalists and this product, the skim, was speaking to millennial women in ways mm-hmm. that the New York Times and whoever else were not. Right. Yeah. And it was resonating with them. Mm-hmm. And I had a good time reading it every morning. And they were just like taking this problem of, you know, forgive the spiel, but journalism is a service, you know, like course, information. Yeah. It's a service that's that's enshrined in the Constitution, but it's still a service. And at the end of the day, like, it's your job to figure out where consumers are and get them this information. Because yeah. when your job is critical to the function of democracy you got to also get real about getting that information to people because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the country depends on it. And I think, like, at the risk of sounding a little dramatic, they were taking that charge kind of seriously, right? Like, they yeah. noticed that their friends weren't consuming the work they did as NBC producers, and they did something about it. And yeah. they said, like, listen, it's really important that you know what's going on in the world and in the country and in the government. So here's a product that addresses that need. And I think, like, the opportunity to be there was really exciting to me. Yeah. And I just, like... For sure women doing something in media is still not the norm and mm-hmm. it should be mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that was really attractive too so it was kind of this perfect storm of all of these elements of something that, that piqued my interest yeah no that, no that is really amazing to you and everyone else when you joined like full-time later on what were your duties i guess what were yeah i came on as the editorial assistant which means that i was helping just kind of fact check like all the things you think of as like that entry-level job of like mm-hmm you know, fact-checking things, doing preliminary research on things, putting 
the newsletter into the CMS so that it could be mailed out every morning. And eventually that role kind of grew into, by accident, producing podcasts and helping kind of build and and launch and and grow the audio products that a skim has. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So moving on from that, where are you now currently? What's kind of a a day in the life of of you? I left the skim in July of, of 2019. And at the time of this recording, I'm on the eve of my first day at the Wall Street Journal. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so over the last few months that I've been kind of freelancing and traveling, I have been kind of developing my own instinct to write again. Um, and it's a tough one to bring back once it's been dormant for a little while. Mm. But a typical, I guess, day in my life is TBD as I will be writing and producing for podcasts again, working on some creative projects on the side, this being one of them, and Mm -hmm. another being kind of a concert festival series, currently benefiting National Immigration Law Center, but broadly, we just would like to elevate the voices in our community through music and events as much as possible. Um, So it's kind of revolving around lots of different projects at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That really is amazing. I mean, I feel like it just, I guess, like a common through line is kind of your mindset about how everything that you're, you're doing is like a service in a way and you're mm. helping, helping others, whether if it's with, you know, presenting the news or your own personal writing too. I don't know where I'm going with this. I just yeah. wa- I just wanted to commend you for that. And I think it's admirable and it's Thank great you. and appreciate you for that. Oh, um, thanks, bro. Of course, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Now, all that being said, uh, how do you define success? It's a really good question. I think for me, there's like a big picture one, right? Like I think, you know, in college, my thesis was about journalism being a service and how we're currently not marketing it that way. We're not, we're not getting it in front of eyes. And I think like big picture in my career, I would love to be a part in some way of helping make sure that information from these major media outlets is getting to people where they actually consume it like creating essentially sustainable journalism so supporting democracy is one 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 version of success for me but also like there is this part of me that like really does want to go back to like the places that i felt the most intensely about writing yeah being so connected with my um emotions and i think you know, maybe it's returning to that and, and taking that a little bit more seriously and, and starting to find a way where it's integrated in my life, but also that I get the courage to kind of share it. Right, yeah. In, in more places. Because uh-huh. I think storytelling, like, is really important to me. I'm listening every day to, like, a bajillion podcasts where Dax Shepard is talking to people about their childhoods or whatever. Yeah. And I'm reading people's memoirs every week, and I just, like, you know, producing podcasts where people are telling me about their lives. Mm-hmm. I just think that that is the lifeblood of human connection is people storytelling and finding commonalities between themselves. And mm-hmm. so on the one hand, I would love for democracy to be supported by sustainable journalism. And on the other hand, I would like for humans to be connected by storytelling. Yeah. I think the amazing thing about that too is that it's it's always going to be there for you writing 
Mm. You know, no one can take that away from you. Yeah. As long as you have you know, a pen, pen and paper. Pen and paper. <laughs> and yep. yeah. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks, Will. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Once again, this is Surviving Artists. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to give us a follow on Instagram at surviving.artists. See you next time.